Hello and welcome to episode 16 of Small Talk Reflections, a podcast about small talk. I'm your host, Craig Latta, and with me are my co-host, Philippe Bach. Hey, hi, Craig. Nice to be here. Cool. And also, I think you have a guest this week. Yeah, I have a guest um, to whom I was uh, presenting a number of things about small talk. Uh, so uh, let me introduce uh, Jean-Christophe Manck. Yes, right. <laughs> <laughs> he had a, a strange look, so I wonder, did I forgot his name? <laughs> I guess not. So, uh, yeah, I did some small talk in the past, but no more uh, mainstream tech, but also Ascal, which is not that mainstream. Nice, all welcome. Okay, thanks. And this week we're going to be talking about unit testing. So, Philippe, what is unit testing? Uh, what is unit testing? It's a lot of things, right? <laughs> uh, Testing little units, maybe methods, I would say. Uh, I would say unit testing is something that would allow me to test in isolation some, some parts of my program. Um, but uh, I'm not super disciplined when it comes to unit testing, I have to, to admit. Uh, I have some, some uses for unit testing, but I'm not releasing packages in the wild to, for other users. When, uh, there, I think unit testing is really mandatory. Um, if there is no documentation, but I have a bunch of unit tests, uh, I can I can really figure out what things are. All things are to be used for sure. What 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 do you do you think is is unit testing for, on on your side? Well, I really focus in on the word unit. I want to be able to test small pieces of behavior, like you were saying, and make sure they do what they're supposed to do, so that you can then compose those little bits of behavior into larger things that do something interesting. And if you can't trust that each little piece is doing what it's supposed to be doing, then you're going to have a harder time building those bigger structures. It's going to take longer and you won't be able to trust them as well as you might if you knew that each piece was doing what it's supposed to do. I also find it very interesting from a teaching point of view. I teach small talk to lots of people and I like to know that I'm teaching them something that is organized in a sane way and isn't full of stuff that is going to distract us from the learning process. So if you have unit tests covering everything in the system, you not only know that everything in the system is doing what it's supposed to do, but also that that piece is actually meaningful, that it has a right to be there in the first place. Yeah, this strikes a chord, definitely. Because I went tried to learn some modules. Like uh, yeah, the, the last days I was busy with Neo CSV, so to, to load CSV files and write them. And I wanted to figure out how these things were working. I was drilling into unit tests a lot. <laughs> that, that, that's true. I was not reading the documentation, but just, how oh, is this really working? Right. But now I, I face some situations where, okay, maybe all the modules, all the little bits are, are okay. But I wanted to use them in a way that was not the way it was presented. And then I faced some some bugs or some some unsupported uh, situations, right? So that's sometimes unit tests tell you, okay, this is working, but it's not proving that it can work in any possible way. Yeah, I mean, my most common use of unit tests is 
I have a system that I've built and I've been using it for a while and then something breaks and there's been some regression yep. and I need to find out where it is. <laughs> Unit tests provide the quickest way to zero in on the place where the problem is. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's cool. I, I said I didn't write that many tests, but for this particular project, I had, a, I don't know, 20, 30 tests. And I was, uh, I, in fact, when writing the test, I wrote the code and from the user feedback, I got, okay, yeah, this is not really what I want. I want this more like this, more like that. And I said, oh yeah, you're right. Here, I, there is another abstraction I can use or another way to, to use the thing, which is much simpler. But then by doing that change, all my tests were going uh, mad, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I changed the underlying assumptions in my code. And so the tests were not passing anymore because they were dealing with other uh, abstractions. Right. So uh, I had groupings and the groupings, what you, you may have a big grouping, a smaller grouping that is uh, inside the bigger one. And my tests were looking at the, the one inside. I did, hadn't introduced the new ones, but I renamed them like the first ones and the, the whole thing was going completely crazy. Mm -hmm. But it could be really a, a super spaghetti if I hadn't had the test to, to help me because it would be a never-ending story uh, in getting everything right. But since I had the contracts, okay, the tests are meant to do this. And so that, that is the same output I expect. And it helped me greatly during the refactoring. Yeah. Yeah, also uh, in line with this idea of creating structures where everything has a right to be there. I'm also building systems that need to be minimal for various technical reasons, not only for understandability, but also for reasons of sheer size. Like sometimes I need to make small systems that can be completely transmitted over a network as fast as possible. So I need to know there isn't any excess stuff. Yeah, the, the less code, the less issues. And tests also can be really a learning experience like, like I had there. Uh, because writing the tests makes us realize that the domain we are dealing with is we misunderstood the part or this part is unclear or we don't have the right abstractions. That's that's for me helping. Yeah, exactly. You, you can reflect about the system much more easily if you have a nice uh, orthogonal set of unit tests covering everything. No, I, I don't want to, to think about uh, the suffering that people who are not using uh, an environment like the Smalltalk one we have are experiencing with unit tests. You know, you need to compile and then you, you need to run the tests. And here it's just like you write your test, you run it, you create uh, the code, it's wrong, you can go back, restart the debugger and so on. It's so much easier. Yeah, that's a very important issue. The combination of unit testing and a dynamic system is really nice. Yeah, because, okay, I do that in my test, and then, oh, maybe I haven't understood how the framework worked. Then I can open a window search and browse it. Maybe run even another test and uh, somewhere else to understand more. Yeah, the feedback loop is so much nicer, yeah. And uh, there is this uh, discussion that, that happened about saying, okay, testing is a bet. And I, I extracted the test, the, the part, and I would read it. Testing is a bet. The bet pays off when your expectations are violated, when a test that you expect to pass fails, or when a test that you expect to fail passes. Yeah, worse. <laughs> uh, so if you could, you would only write those tests that pay off. Since, since you can't know which test would pay off, if you did, then you would already know and you wouldn't be learning anything. You write tests that might pay off. As you test, you reflect on which kind of tests tend to pay off and which don't. And you write more of the ones that do pay off and fewer of the ones that don't. Where basically, 
I have seen a lot of unit tests testing accessors in Java, for example, which was completely crazy, and but about very little tests that, that mattered. It's truly a bet. It's, uh, it's interesting as a take. How would you look at this uh, side, like testing is a bet? Yeah, I would agree. And this sort of falls in line with my philosophy about testing being a justification. Testing is not a bet. It's also a proof, a proof that this code is relevant, that it deserves to exist. Yeah, but then there's this thing coming on. For example, we write some tests and then we reshape things and so on. And there are tests which are, you know, like rotting, you know, they are no more relevant. And we need to to prune these older tests that do not make do not make sense anymore. Um, how, how do you deal with that in unit testing? When we talk about coverage, that's a an actual concrete term. We can keep track of which compiled methods in our system get touched as the virtual machine runs, and which method dictionaries are holding on to those methods. And our unit testing code is just compiled methods like anything else. So we can always keep track of the coverage of all the code in our system, including the tests. And I agree, this is a very important point of hygiene that we should be paying attention to. We should notice when a unit test hasn't been touched in a while. And so how would you run the coverage? Because, for example, in the test runner, I see, uh, for example, let's say uh, array test uh, and float array test, integer, uh, integer array test. And I have this uh, run coverage button, right? And he asked me for a package. Okay, I would say uh, the one it's lying on, collection something. What, what's the support we have in there? I mean, because I never really use the coverage uh, aspect. Ah, well, I'm talking about something that I don't think is in any of the current mainstream testing tools. I'm talking about keeping track of when the virtual machine has run particular compiled methods. This is something I'm suggesting that we do in the future, and it's something I'm working on myself. It's a way that we could improve the testing user interface. Okay, because I see uh, methods, no methods, uh, no covered code, or methods are not marked for coverage. So yeah, that's it's pretty difficult to understand here. And I never really used it, which which is a shame. Let's bring in our guest at this point. What do you think about all of this so far? My take on this is that the, when you talk about unit tests, uh, okay, you have to define what is what a unit is, in fact. Is it a unit of what of code? In that case, is it a method or a class or a namespace or a subsystem? It's not clear for me. The second thing, um, I think most most important point is that when you do some some test, any kind of test, what you're doing is that you're not testing code really. You're, you're testing a, a piece of specification or atomic specification, and for this you have to do positive and negative negative tests. What I mean is that if you have a specification, you can decide to implement it using one method, two methods, one class, two class, I don't know. But um, you should always, that's how I do things, I mean, it's not just my personal opinion. You should, the test should be driven by your specifications and atomic specifications. That's how I, I'm doing tests. So I do not make many difference between unit tests, user tests, system tests. Uh, it's, everything is driven by the specifications. For instance, if a specification tells me, okay, I have to, to, to compute, the, compute the square root or something like this, I could do it in a classical unit test because it doesn't need any resource or things like that. If uh, my specification is to make sure that the file is open in red, in that case, it needs some, some external resources. Maybe it's not going to be um, considered as a unit test, but nevertheless, it's a, it's a test. So that's my main point. 
and the second point I had is about uh, the test as a learning experience. Um, in fact, it's not because you are doing a test, it's not because you're testing something that you learn something about how you can a client can use your code, or it's about the way your um, interface or APIs, API is uh, structured. In fact, you learn about your code because as you're, you're writing a test, you're the first client of, the, of your code. You see, even though the test uh, would do nothing, you would be a first client. So you, you would learn how to, how to use your code. In fact, how, how to, yes, to, to, to use it. And if, if you use a compiled language, how um, does it compile, in fact? So we are, we are going into the TDD space there. Yeah, maybe TDD. I don't know. I'm not a bit <laughs> big fan of TDD anyway. Uh, so I don't, yes, just to, uh, I don't think that every method should be tested and certainly not, um, I don't think that uh, a test should be written before uh, writing any methods, but because it's, uh -huh. it puts some, some stress on the way you, 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 you on, it limits the freedom you, you have when you design your system. Because if you have to design to, to write the test first, that means that you have an idea about the structure of your system and you see it's, maybe it's complicated to, uh, to change because if you write the test, you have to come to, to write the API um, uh, with respect to that test. And then if you change your mind, you have to update the test. Now, what you could do to start um, having uh, some architecture, some structure, start programming until you are satisfied, more or less, and then you can start writing the test, you see. And in the meantime, you, you, maybe you have iterated twice or three times over this, uh, the, the, the way you want to structure the code. So there you mean uh, we have this aspect of code maturity or maturity of the code? Yes, I think that when you write code, you have to think before you're writing code. So and you have to think about the structure of the code and if you're ex experienced, you can have a pretty good idea about how you, you want to structure your code. So it's interesting to have these, uh, these, these, these things because you, Craig, you said, okay, code does not exist if there is not a test. You can't pass it on to someone else until there is a test, is what I'm saying. I'm not necessarily saying you have to write tests before any code all the time, which I guess is one of the, the tenets of test-driven design for some people. So, like, you, if you, when you release something, it's not really uh, of good quality if it's not with a test, uh, a set of tests. Right. Yeah, it's. I would say it's. It's really not even ethical to foist it on other developers uh, unless there is testing. Because it's, for me, testing, in addition to all of its other functional aspects, is just as important as documentation as any uh, comment, like a class comment. It's actually an executable documentation. Yeah, I agree. Also, that there should be a very strong connection between your tests and your specifications. Ideally, you can derive the tests from your specifications. Yeah. It all depends on the context of a project, right? Yeah. If I try to make sense of something, what are my tests trying to, to achieve? Maybe it's just driving my program so that I can click easily using using these uh, little buttons. But it's not proving anything. It's not for releasing. But then there's, there's this part uh, where you have tests and you have examples. And like typically the things we we put uh, under an examples uh, protocol on the class side of things and with a command and we just do we just do a do it on on that code right and and there are quite a bunch of them in in the images this is not yet a full uh, uh, uh let's say a first uh, class citizen this type of example thing but i i think it it's also useful and it's not mixing the test and the example 
more like what we do these days in Faro, we have uh, the playground. So write some code and then boom, we, we see what's going on. But this code there, typically it's, it's an example of what you use things together, right? It's another uh, usage as a test, but it can also do some coverage, but it's more like for the research side, trying to figure out how things are, are going, putting things together. We have this, this, this uh, part when there is a duration of tests, right? For example, these examples, I, I was reading a large file. It was taking maybe, I don't know, 10 seconds to, to do all the, the things I had to do on that file. And, and this was just an indication my code was pretty bad for some uh, <laughs> collection work. I should have been using streams, but still. Um, but there, a test should be, should be what? Short, a unit test should be short in time, or we don't really care. What, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, ideally, all the tests you write should be able to run very, very quickly so that you can get the most out of this uh, fluid feedback loop we talked about before. But yeah, you want to be testing as small a subsystem as possible so that you can make something which is as composable as possible. And the smaller it is, the more likely you can use it with other tests to make some meaningful group of tests. Mm -hmm. So it's like uh, the same in the same spirit as a method should be kept small. Yeah, exactly. Because if you're a large method, <laughs> by nature, it's, it's quite hard to make uh, a number of tests that would really exercise it properly, right? Right, and you, you're more likely to be concerned with more issues in that method. So it's probably more likely to duplicate something in some other method somewhere else. And... Yeah, that's one of the worst things you can do is uh, duplicate code in the system because then you can get version, different versions of behavior which are slightly out of sync with each other, doing slightly different things or doing things more than once that only need to be done once, yeah. But when it comes to naming tests, right, there are, there are this feature when you say uh, uh, generate tests and, and jump on it when you're on a, on a method. But there we have the same name. We have, for example, operation blah and we have test blah. Uh, if there are parameters, okay, it concatenates all the, the parts of the message together. But uh, that's just exercising the method once and not really uh, working, not working and so on. Is there any standard in naming tests like that? Or do you have any uh, practice, best practice from your side? No, I don't know of a standard there. Yeah, I don't really have a, a standard there for myself either. <laughs> How about you? Huh. Me, I try to write tests. Sorry, the discipline for me to write tests. So, yeah. <laughs> the thing is, I have an end goal in mind. And then I say, okay, to get there, these are the steps I need to do. And so first step, then let's test this. And I write a test for it. And I try to execute it. And then my code behind is being built uh, from the test. So it's not really test-driven design, but uh, it's more like, Try to figure out what I, if if I my mind view is is correct versus what that computer tells me, and that's why I like Smalltalk very much because this feedback loop is so so fast. I can experiment with five different things very quickly. Yeah. Well, for me, most of my tests are. I mean, when I'm making a system, there's usually one big test, which is is the system useful to me, and usually that can be exercised with a single expression in a workspace which fails for a long time until it works. Uh, and, and in the meantime, I'm debugging the thing into existence, which I suppose is a form of test-driven design. I start by writing a workspace expression, which doesn't work. 
and I make it work. Yeah. But that would be like the examples, right? Because here on, on Faro, we have the playground and we have snippets, I'd say, that are saved there. And uh, yeah, I said here I have my data source is blah, 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 data source, read data, and then experience, try some some method on it and then run. And yeah, if I if it fails or it shows something to me, then... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess I, I practice example-driven design, and you can usually derive uh, one or many useful unit tests out of an example once you've gotten it working. Yeah, that's that's um, yeah, and also with the playground and the example, what I was able to do is show it to the user, because here I had uh, okay, it's it's about school, so you have the classes and so on, and the students, and say okay, what's really a the group you want and it, it isn't it was not just a year and, and a number for the class but it was, was the sub option is included also so the, all the the slicing of the data was, was different and using this example being able to visualize very quickly and change the code at the same time that, that was very useful yeah yeah exactly and you, yeah usually what i'm working toward is a demo that i can show to another person so yeah i mean demo example is a sort of synonymous mm. and then it went to the tests at that point, I, I started writing, you know, uh, I took the code and uh, every step I was writing asserts, for example, on, on, on things. And I even have in my test something called uh, self-explore <laughs> on the result. And this self-explore is something like uh, inspect data if true <laughs> and object explore. <laughs> so if I do this set in setup, I, I enable it to true. And then if it's running and I click on a test, then boom, I get an inspector <laughs> on the data that this test is producing in some way. Right, right. Oh, that's useful. So, so I, I just uh, turn it to false when I want to run my test in the test runner. But uh, yeah, it's <laughs> I'm, a pervert, I'm perverting a bit the, the intent. Uh, also, one, one, one issue I run into is uh, on asserts, for example. Um, like here, I have an assert that the set I get back is a collection of a given size, like here's a 70. But the 70 is depending on my input. And in fact, I am using an external file, which is wrong to do with, uh, in the setup. But of course, I get a new file and the 70 is wrong. So I would have to touch my test again for, for getting it to work. And that's definitely not a unit test because I have a dependency on something external. So I do it for expediency, but it's very frustrating. So I'd say having discipline in writing proper tests pays off because it removes this frustration. You know, it's it's clean and you're you're confident that it's okay because if I put more shit in there, then it's it's worse and worse, right? At one point this this all falls down, right? I just have a bunch of tests that work. It's kind of work, but I, I, there's no proof indeed. And so so I, I get back to your, your argument, your, your point uh, at the beginning. We, we also sometimes want to compose tests. Here we have unit tests, but we can also have more complicated tests. Uh, how do we do that? Because here we have a test case, so blah, blah, blah test, or test blah, blah, blah extends test case, right? Right. Yeah, usually you're starting for something very complex that you want to show works that there's no regression in but usually that can be deconstructed into several things that are useful to test on their own so i usually think of decomposing complicated tests into simpler ones yeah actually it's more decomposing test yeah okay yeah 
here I, I had that at one point. I wanted to export to Excel, and then I tried the the whole the whole thing to to export to the Excel. But then I faced other problems, uh, like I want to export something to uh, an external format, and then there were streams, and streams were transforming data, like you know UTF-8 to Latin one and so on. And I had problems because my encoding was wrong, but there was not really a, a very nice way, I think, to to help me there, you know? Because when I write on the file, something is occurring, but to test, I, the, the string was right in my inspector, right? So I could uh, assert that it equals uh, some, some data, but the encoding was wrong at the end. It was very difficult to test that, you know? Mm -hmm. So these are there are a lot of special cases that that I I had to spend time on because I went the test way. So right, it's it's uh, testing is work. Testing is work and, uh, and significant work. Yeah, I guess the last thing I do when I think I have tests for everything is I make sure that literally every method that I've written is covered by some test. Mm -hmm. That's sort of the, the last step in composing tests for me. And how do you do that? You, you, you look each by each or you have a naming convention or, or what? I, well, I actually use a, a modified virtual machine that can tell me which methods have been run since a certain point in time. So I just clear all the marks and then I run all my unit tests. And then if there are any methods unmarked, I have to put them into a test or make a new test. Okay. Uh, definitely, I don't have that option at the point. At this point, it's, it's very good to have. Yeah, we should use that more, like tracing things, like you, like the 32-bit images going to 64 and image tracing. Right. right. Found always, I always found that fascinating. <laughs> Are you doing a lot of that with, I guess, your your context project? Yeah, exactly. I'm James T. Savage, and this is the Small Talk Jobs Report. Brusenel, our EU contributor, reports that in Amsterdam, there is a small talk position open in the banking industry. Being able to speak in Dutch is a requirement for this team lead position. In Lille, France, Synectique is looking for someone with strong skills in OO design, front-end JavaScript, and back-end Seaside slash Faro. The ideal candidate would also be skilled in Agile methodologies and fluent in French and or English. Capital Federal, Argentina. Unei IT Services has two openings for an Analista Programador Smalltalk. If you don't have experience with Smalltalk, they are willing to train candidates that have C++ experience. Manda Luang, Philippines. Calabra has a couple of Smalltalk positions open for candidates that also have experience with Java. The duties of one of the positions will include teaching Smalltalk to Java programmers. Los Angeles, California, USA. Macropace is looking for a Smalltalk developer who also has six plus years of experience in core Java programming. Experience with desktop-based client and server technology architecture. Willingness to code and develop applications in Smalltalk. Willingness to explore the system architecture and framework method. Strong experience in preparing object status reports and exposure to Scrum Agile process. It is considered a plus if you have experience with COBOL and DB2 on mainframes. 
Williamton, Massachusetts. New Iron Group is looking for a small talk developer analyst who has a BS degree in computer science or related area plus five years of experience. They also want experience with small talk, C, C++, object-oriented development, and a demonstrated ability to lead small, one to three resources, development efforts. It is considered a plus if you have semiconductor or manufacturing industry experience and configure equipment interface. Williamton, Massachusetts. Rudolph Technologies has a position for a software systems engineer intern who has at least one year in engineering in an accredited engineering degree program or a computer science degree program, OO programming skills, an interest in electronics, servo systems, optics, and or image processing. There is an additional range of skills that are considered a plus to have, including small talk. The jobs listed in this report are just a few examples of the small talk positions that are currently open across the world. For more details, read our shared blog at smalltalkjobs.com. Good luck with your job hunting. In, in our preparation, you told me about testing and minimalism. So testing as a concrete demonstration of code coverage. So this is the kind of things we discussed. Uh, philosophically, uh, why do you think this is a, a super key aspect? Well, I think we've already covered that. Uh, I think the most important thing is from a, a teaching point of view, you want to teach minimal systems because then the student doesn't waste time learning about things that aren't, aren't important. And you want the things they are learning to be well-organized, well-constructed things. You mean, you mean what, limiting accidental complexity? Uh, sure, sure. A system that is built uh, with an eye toward not letting extraneous stuff accumulate at all times will end up being a better organized system yeah, a system which is constructed at all times with an interest in not letting extraneous stuff accumulate will end up being better organized and easier to teach. So, that, so that's my main, my main concern there. But it'll also be easier to maintain, and it will just be smaller, which has lots of benefits. But I, I really share that when compared, you know, like doing work in Smalltalk versus doing work in, in Java or you know, JavaScript with Node. And there is so, so, so much accidental complexity that the available time takes more, you, you take more time wearing the tech, techie hat than the problem solver hat, right? Yeah, in, in most file-based systems, for example, I mean, the whole concept of traceability just isn't there. I mean, in Smalltalk, you can point to a method and say, you know, who are the senders? And instantly you know, and that's like a foundational ability for enabling all the rest of this stuff we're talking about. In most file-based static systems, you, j you don't even have that ability. So you're way off on a different universe already. The system helps me and I see the code of other people and I, I, I am educated and it's, I can see new things. And the more I use it, uh, the more interesting parts I can dig in and up my game, right? Yeah. Yeah. Which I do some C-sharp thing and then you get the framework trio and foro and they change the language and then, well, just you spend your time learning new things, but for what really, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you have this new symbol and this new thing and well, okay, blocks 
methods <laughs> at the meta level and, and be done and just you no know, focus on producing things maybe we can move to the technical side of unit testing in the in the system uh, and so we get this s unit framework and um, in fact it's, it's quite small right mm -hmm. it's just a couple type of, of class classes uh, just let me see how many we have I, we have test case uh, yeah, in this assumed core, and uh, ah, actually, I see that test case is a subclass of test assertor, right? Yeah, there's really just one simple idea in SUnit. You want a, a way to assert things and to collect the results and uh, debug assertions that aren't true. Well, there's more classes, but there's a lot there, and they skip, skip. That's interesting. Skip this test. <laughs> Actually, I thought there was a, a small number of things, but there's a huge number of things in this unit core. Even test announcements, right? Yeah, you want to be able to communicate the results to various places. And I, I assume a, a more recent feature has been uh, relaxing constraints temporarily. So that's where this skip stuff comes from. Okay, but because we, we are talking about, okay, we have the test case, right? Uh, into which we have the test methods, which are with, okay, they begin with tests so that the, the system can find it's a test and run it. And then we have the test suite, right, for grouping tests. So where, where are these test suites? Just let me check. Hey, in fact, we don't have many test suites in the image. I have only six uses of it. <laughs> Yeah, only one. Because test suite name a string, but there's no, not many test uh, suites. Because actually, here a test case is much easier in our language because we can put test methods all over and not just un one test case having just one test. I don't know in Java. Can we put multiple tests in in a test case? Um, in in Java. Yes, 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 yes. Ah, okay. Well, the issue of external resources is interesting. Some tests that you need to do that require staging, things that need to be prepared in a certain way before the test can even be run meaningfully. So that that could invoke a lot of code in your testing framework. Yeah, I don't see much usage of that either. Ah, yeah, there are done resources. Okay, a particular resource. Uh, for example, a gopher resource, which is there. And... In Gopher test, yeah, for a, a Monticello repository, of course, we wanted to, to test that. Yeah, and there's some tests in a subsystem which may only be relevant after the system has been in use for quite a while. There may be some situations that you only get into after you've been having a certain network conversation for a long time. It's not something that you can just uh, arrange to test Im immediately. Yeah. But so you would say, like, we could make a resource, so we record things happening and we collect that into some structure and then we make a resource out of it. Yeah, that's one way of doing it or just keeping track of what it is you have to do to get to that point. Yeah, don't get you there. Can you explain me a bit more? Well, say you're testing a source version system. There may be some things you want to test that are only relevant once you have a really humongous database full of real information, not something that you can easily fake. Now, for the test coverage, you told me you have a, a special VM that is marking methods uh, in the object memory. 
so that you know the coverage happened. But is there any other way to do that on, on a plane, small talk system? Uh, no, not that I know of. Um, you could build something that uses sampling technology sim similar to what method tally uses, but I really don't see the point. Uh, it's so simple um, just to make the virtual machine do the marking for you since it's the thing that's looking up the methods and running them anyway. Mm -hmm. um, this is uh, technology that I developed for removing unused behavior from from systems. Yes. Uh, every time I move to a different small talk uh, to um, remove unused behavior and to install a module system, I need to do something like this, uh, sort of a big shrink. Yeah. And yeah, this is just the easiest way to do it. And it happens to be useful for other things too, uh, like uh, unit test coverage. Yeah, for also for making a minimal system, like you write a piece of code that uses the objects you like to, to have referenced or the classes yeah, and the methods and just keep that, right? Well, that's how I'm doing the shrink, yeah. Yeah, um, that, I've, that I found very interesting. And if we have a bootstrap system, just do that, keep only this part and up, send it. Yeah. Could open a lot of new doors for embedding this tech and about anything. Yeah, and for this to work, you need a good set of unit tests. So this is a symbiotic relationship. If you have good unit tests, then you can use this marking stuff to do a proper shrink. Mm -hmm. And then the the VM technology, which is doing the marking, is useful for everyday uh, use of your unit tests. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the the way the the we we name that test, but there are a lot of usages for the underlying technology. Uh, let's say building blocks like marking things, following what we have and so on. These VM changes are things that are coming to the open small talk VM. So it's something that will be available to every Pharaoh and Squeak and Newspeak system pretty soon. Is this on the specific branch already? No, 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 it's not committed yet. Oh, okay. I'd be curious to look. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I'm looking at it and fixing, you know, the surrounding parts, like the plugins and stuff, but what the thing does really. I'm very frustrated not to have a, a working interpreter inside Faro itself. Okay, I have one which runs inside Squeak, but I really like to have it in Faro too. So, because a working simulator, that's really a way to, to learn and, and uh, maybe experiment with these things. That's, I guess, what you do as well. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. I would say that's the number one rule of open small talk is don't break the simulator. Yeah. Yeah, the, the simulator is really uh, a special thing we have, right? That's uh, there is no other VM that does that. And, uh, even for embedding the the VM in other languages or as an extension system, like people do with Lua and so on, yeah, we de definitely have uh, to make like a simplified core by tracing the objects like you did, and uh, yeah and being able to, to tune this VM and, and embed it to whatever we want. So test may be a, a good device to contribute to that, right? Yeah, indeed. So I'm interested in this last point uh, that you uh, brought up in our notes. Um, is test-driven development dead? Did you ask that because you've heard people say that or you think that? There's been a, like a fashion, a TDD fashion, right? 
like you know the TDD Nazis just write tests before anything and write tests for everything including setters and getters right? okay then I start looking for the bar after two seconds but uh, is TDD dead yeah it's just I don't like to be put in a box so yeah there, there are good ideas in uh, in that it's meaning okay if, if we do for example an interface to that people can talk to of course, uh, we can think about the way people will use it, but that's the same as doing, uh, you know, personas for uh, user interfaces. It's just we write a bunch of tests that 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 are manifest uh, materializing the contract we have, and uh, we can exercise it through a number of paths. So that that makes sense. Um, but should we do that for any kind of system? I'd say if I do web UI, am I going to do any unit test? Okay, I can do with Selenium and so on, but at one point, it's so complicated. Really, what the, the sheer amount of testing is is really di uh, divesting resources from from the key parts. But now, my key services, the things that do transactions, that do complex computations, and so on. I think, yeah, these have to be tested. Right. Well, as you say, at some point, testing can just turn into busy work that isn't useful. Yeah, I hate busy work. No, I also hate failure work. So the work that I have to do because things go went wrong. So. TDD as uh, testing as unit testing has some value in avoiding me to do failure work. Yeah, and even if you automate busy work so that it's not as annoying to you as a human being, if it's still just busy work, it doesn't make it any more worth doing. Yeah, it, it would be a, a lot of noise. Like generate a test for each thing and just basically, well, I don't know, instantiate a class and just call something on it and assert that, okay, this class is not nil. I've seen tests like that. I mean, psh. <laughs> it's a cargo cult of testing. Eh? Right. <laughs> well, it's true. And at some point, uh, unit testing can be at odds with minimalism. Mm -hmm. uh, it grows on us. Because, right? yeah, uh, tests can grow into something that isn't necessary. Yeah, we need to, to stop the cancer from spreading. We need to cut something there. But that mo may be more an organizational problem than just a technological problem. Yeah, exactly. So I would say maybe test-driven design is being compromised or killed by people who are taking some of its ideas too far hmm. but the basic idea of it i think is still a good one even if you don't always write tests first i think you can still be test driven without always being tests first yeah but what i can definitely agree on is if someone releases a piece of code that is useful to others in the wild well it's <laughs> it's very welcome when there is a ton of test uh, <laughs> coming with it as well yeah, it's certainly usually better than no tests at all. Even if I have to put up with a few obvious tests that don't really buy much. But I would say when I do Seaside I am and jQuery, I'm very happy that there are a ton of jQuery tests. <laughs> I call functional tests, by the way, but I'm very happy that there is a lot of things demonstrating how to use things. That, that's for sure. <laughs> and sometimes even a trivial looking test can uh, prove its worth uh, in catching regression in some silly thing that no one ever thought would regress. Sometimes that does happen. And it's a test that can catch it. Yeah. Um, here I see, uh, like, uh, in the files package, uh, like, test file exists. And, yeah, just uh, create a file, close the file, and assess that the file exists and delete it. Yeah. <laughs> it's simple, but it can be a lot because the underlying file system can be very different. So, yeah. Right. And sometimes not having a test like that can uh, cause you to not find a very subtle and fundamental bug for a long time. Yeah. 
Yeah, silent failure. Ah, yeah, one thing that bugs me a lot. It's when you do, when we look at the tests, in the test protocols, okay, we have testing, we have running, but sometimes we have a lot of things that are under the testing moniker. Do you have any specific way? Because here I have testing access, testing arithmetic, even associations with a typo in it, testing blocks, testing variables, testing this, so, you know, grouping tests inside protocols. There's a lot of names, you know, it's, it's a bit like the accessing thing when you have accessing and accessing dash this, accessing dash that. Is there any, any practice you have there? For well, again, I'm working on different ways of organizing behavior in classes. I think the classic class organizer is pretty lacking. I would rather see a tags-based system where you can just apply a bunch of tags to every method in the system and do searches. Oh, yeah. It was probably too expensive to do in the early days of Smalltalk, but it's cheap now, so I think we should be doing that. I love uh, tags and structured tags and, you know, like folksonomy by by the crowd, but also tagging by people who know how things are working. Like we have a bit in uh, in the GT inspector, there's also tags there. Yeah. And, uh, Toolkit, you can you can use that definitely it's, it's very nice but yeah the, the small talk 80 class organizer and system organizer i think are very crude and are really not sufficient yeah well i don't have that in other platforms so i'm already happy but maybe yeah that's typical of this platform is not very not being happy with the status quo right yeah yeah when you start doing major shrinks to make minimal images you sort of have to run your fingers through every single class and method in, in the system. And you learn very quickly which things you can part with and which things you need to keep or which things you don't want to keep, but you have to replace with something else. It was quite a challenge to rip out the categorizer subclasses from Smalltalk 80, the system organizer and class organizer. They're wired in there at a very fundamental level every time you change any code they usually get involved yeah i wouldn't want to just kill them but they have to be replaced with some sort of tag system yeah yeah at category and protocols and classify and notify of things but still it's it's very interesting with the interplay with the ids and so on huh? That's, mm -hmm. uh, yeah yeah maybe uh, uh jean christophe has uh, some additional insight that our exchanges prompted um, not really. I just have one question about: Is there a way in Smalltalk to generate um, um, uh, the um, uh, test data? I mean, suppose I've got a class a point. Uh, I want to do some test on it, but I want to to, to do the same test on multiple um, values of that point. So, is it is there a way to to generate um, pseudo randomly um, sets of points, things like that, or? Uh, with generators, right? I don't know if you have generators. Yes, I see that one here. Yeah, it's a generator, you know, generator on a block. And there you, you just generate yield and something. And, yeah, and there yeah, you go. yes, but how do you, in, in that case, since we we see that the value are not random, we see, is there a way to, to generate pseudo random values? Yeah, you can. See? Okay, I can do it something like this. You can, yeah. you can put anything in that block, so. Okay. Uh, and if I want to to generate complex object like a circle, which uh, depends on a, which has a point as a center and a radius, so it has to use. If I want to generate a, a circle value, I have to generate to use the 
point generator to generate the scent or something. How can I combine all these generators? I yeah, don't you mean clear. generating something <coughs> from a set of expected uh, input? Uh, something right? like this. Being exhaustive? Um, not really. Well, you cannot be exhaustive. But no, no, but uh, closer uh, than exhaustive than just uh, a bunch of examples yeah, taken yeah, off yes, yes, the blue. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, yes. Right. Yeah, this sounds like some sort of staging behavior that would be the responsibility of uh, a test class that you would write. I don't know if you heard about this uh, something called quick check in Haskell. No. Or FS, FS check in C sharp, F sharp, or something. Mm -hmm. you, should have, you should have a look. Oh, okay. Quick check. Quick check. It's, yes, it's more well, Haskell, it's a typed, strongly typed language. So there's a way to, um, to generate um, values from uh, type specification, something like this. Uh -huh. way. But, so, okay. like, uh, I would have strings of 10 positions and it would be giving me whatever fits that or, contract. Yeah, something or if you have a list, a list of integer, for instance, then you can generate um, random lists. I mean, a list, an empty list, a list with yeah, just one value, two values, and many values. And all I'd that. say it's definitely combining a generator. Yes, it, it, you, have to, you have to have a way to combine, co combine a generator. Just like the parser, you see? In the, you showed me. Yeah, I was it, showing petit parser. Yeah, to, okay. Uh, to in parser, uh, what, what you do is you have some primitive to create parser, and then you have some methods acting on, on parsers, taking parsers as arguments and returning parsers. So you, you are not parsing, but you are just building the parser, you see? So well, in fact, you, you may want also to generate, uh, say, uh, <laughs> instead of taking an input and parsing it, you want to take the rules and generate potential input, right? Oh, uh, no, that's complicated. Uh, <laughs> I, no, there's a way to do it. No, there's a way to do it, but you cannot really generate. What you can do is to, to have, you can express your specifications as a logical expression. Yes. And then what you can do, you can, on so you have this on in, in on one in one end, and on the other end, you have, you've got your um, data, test data generator, and you can test, um, apply the, the uh, logical expression on the data mm -hmm. to see if this uh, specific set, uh, specific value, data value, corresponds to a positive test of the, uh, the specification, or it violates a uh, specification okay. in one way. Okay. So that's the way and, to... And then we get back to monkeys trying to type Shakespeare, right? <laughs> no, not really, it works. <laughs> yeah, I don't say it wouldn't work, but it may take a long time to... Oh, uh, maybe, depending. Well, I think that's a good place to stop. Philippe, how can people reach you on Twitter? Yeah, they can... Find me under the, the Twitter uh, handle uh, at uh, Philip Back. But the best way is to search for the hashtag Faro. And I am the guy who shows up at the top of the list because I have tweeted a, a lot about it. <laughs> oh, cool. That's a, that's a good <laughs> technique. Yeah, yeah. My Twitter handle is my name with every letter doubled. C-C-R-R-A-A-I-I-G-G. -G. Yeah, I'm always missing one of them. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so we look forward to hearing from you if you have suggestions about things to talk about on a future episode, perhaps someone you'd like us to interview. And maybe a video podcast episode for a, for a try. Yeah, exactly. I'd love to do one of those. Well, thanks for joining me, you guys. Yeah, thank you, Craig. Okay, thanks. Nice to meet you. Hey, maybe we, we will lure someone back to Smoto, right? John Christopher. Ah, yeah. uh, <laughs> yeah, they have seen the light. Yeah, it's great. Ha, 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 ha.